Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. Last week, we began a new series here uh, on the DNA of Cornerstone, where we're just taking a look at our core values, uh, the things we hold most dearly as a church. And last week, we looked at gospel centrality and particularly what that means in relation to uh, us as a church, for the implications that has for us as a community and as a body. And we saw that Jesus seeks and he welcomes sinners. And if he seeks and welcomes sinners, then our church should be a safe place where, where sinners are welcomed. Now, today I want to talk about gospel centrality again, uh, but this time I want to focus on the application to us personally and individually. And so we're going to read this story in Luke 18, so please stand now as your act of worship for the reading and receiving of God's holy word. Luke 18, beginning with verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I get tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Would you join me in prayer once more? Father, as we humble ourselves underneath your word, uh, we know that we're not humbling ourselves just under a book, but uh, the way that you've revealed yourself to us, your uh, very spoken truth. And so as we hear your voice, we ask that your Holy Spirit would open our hearts and that he would um, protect us from distraction and free us from the different worries and anxieties we have. And that instead, in this moment, he would still our hearts so we could hear your voice and that the Spirit would cast their eyes upon Jesus. And that, Lord, as we come into your presence and hear your word, our hearts would be healed because we're hearing the voice of not just our Creator and our Maker, but our Redeemer, our Sustainer, and our Father. Bless us now, we pray and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, there are a few things in life that we need to grow up and move beyond. Right? It's a sign of maturity to grow out of certain things. And so, for example, we let our children uh, suck their thumbs for a bit, but at a certain age, you start disciplining them to stop. Uh, children need to eventually grow out of di diapers, and so at one point, you need to start potty training them. You know, uh, potty training is not something that you leave until your kid's about to go off to college to begin teaching them. Um, and then think about your in the way that you grew up out of certain habits, like, for example, uh, calling your father, your mother, daddy, and mommy. Uh, I'm sure, or I hope, most of you have matured out of that. So it would be a strange thing to hear an adult, uh, you know, talking on the phone and, and ending it, okay, mommy, I'll talk to you later. Um, because when you see children doing that, when we see the children in the church running toward mom and dad and they shout mommy and daddy, we laugh and we smile and it's, it's cute. It's, it's normal. It's natural. Uh, 
but I'm sure if my parents came and you saw me running toward the back calling out mommy and daddy, uh, you would think something was very suspicious. Because there are things we need to mature out of. Things physically, but there are also spiritual things we need to mature out of. And the Bible addresses these. Or the Bible says in Colossians 1, the apostles' desires to proclaim Christ so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And Hebrews encourages us to, to leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and to go on to maturity. And then Paul writes to the Ephesians that we should work for unity of faith and maturity in manhood. For what purpose? So that we may no longer be children. You see, Scripture encourages us again and again, grow up in the faith. Mature in Christ. Stop walking as children. And we need to hear this. We need to be challenged that maturity in your Christian life doesn't just look like near-perfect church attendance. Maturity in the Christian life isn't filling your Sundays with a lot of religious activity. Christian maturity looks like bearing fruit of the Spirit. It looks like growing in love for God and love for others. And so we need to mature beyond the basics. To mature in knowledge beyond Sunday school stories. To mature in your relationship with God beyond prayers that are just, Dear God, thank you for this food and bless my day. The question is, are you maturing as a Christian? Are you growing as a child of God? And as you think about that question and you start kind of answering it, you got to be really careful here. And you have to be careful with how you are measuring your growth. Because listen to this, while the Bible tells us that we need to mature beyond the basics, it never says that we mature apart from the basics. Do you understand that? We're called to mature beyond the basics, to not just stay there, but never apart from the basics. Another way of putting it is maturity in the gospel doesn't mean growing beyond the gospel. It means growing deeper into the gospel. Or Christian growth is not going further past the gospel, but going further into the gospel. And so the question I have for you this morning is this. Do you find yourself growing in the gospel of God's grace? Do you sense in your life that there's a growing commitment and centrality to the gospel of Jesus Christ in your life? As we read in today's story, it gives us, Jesus in his parable gives us two portraits. The first is of a man who's trying to move beyond the gospel. And the second is of a man who's plunging deeper into the gospel. And this parable is so important for us to understand because it's what it's giving us is insight into what life looks like when you get the gospel, when it grips your heart, and what life looks like when you miss the gospel or you forget it. And so we're going to look at this passage. Um, I do this every once in a while where I take a passage and I study it, and it's so rich that um, I'm so tempted to preach a sermon that would be an hour and a half, but I don't think you would appreciate it. And so it's split up into this week and next week. And basically, it's going to be one sermon take, you know, split up over two weeks. And the three points that we see uh, is really how the gospel changes your perspective on three things. Uh, the first is your view of yourself. The second is your view of others. And third is your view of God. Like when the gospel comes into your life, it should do a transforming work. And that means you're going to view yourself differently. You're going to view others differently. You're going to view God differently. And so in an act of mercy and to spare you, I'm only going to focus on this first point, And then next week, we'll look at the last two. 
And so here is today's gospel truth, the one-sentence summary of what we're talking about. The gospel frees you to look inward and see yourself as you truly are. The gospel gives you the freedom to look inward and see who you truly are. And so today, again, we're only working on this first point, your view of yourself and how the gospel changes that. With your Bible open, look with me. Jesus begins his parable in verse 10 like this. Two men went up into the temple, which sounds like an opening to a bad joke, but two men went up into a temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And what he's going to go on is he's going to give a portrait of both of these characters. And the first portrait is of this Pharisee. But what we see about the Pharisee is that he's utterly self-deceived and has an inflated view of himself. Because look at the way he prays. We get, it, we get the eavesdrop on his prayer when he says, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Now this man has a view of himself that's so delusional that he dares to stand before God and boast in himself. Do you see that? This is just a short prayer, but he's already mentioned himself five times and God only once. If you look at the prayer in verse 11, he says, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I fast. I give tithes of all I get. His eye is only on himself and not on God at all. But there's a reason for it. It actually makes sense why he prays this way. You see, because his approach to religion is based on his performance, it's not based on God's gospel, the gospel of grace, but on his performance. He must focus on his religious and his pious behavior because he has no other choice. He has no other choice to relate to God. And so it's like he's logged into a spiritual LinkedIn and he needs to buff up his spiritual resume before God. He needs to appear important and impressive to God. He, needs to, he wants to be accepted. He wants to be noticed. He wants to stand out. And so what does he do? He focuses on two things. He latches in on two things. The first is the sin that he thinks he avoids. And the second is the good that he thinks he does. So two things, two ways that he's presenting himself as spiritually impressive. The first is he focuses on what he avoids. He says, God, I thank you. I'm not like other men. I'm not like an extortioner. I'm not unjust. I'm not an I'm not like that guy, that tax collector. Now here's what's really interesting about this. What he says is not actually wrong. The Pharisee is not outwardly evil. He's not sinful like the people he just listed. And so you have to know right off the bat, Jesus' point in teaching this is not, hey, you shouldn't lie like this Pharisee. That's not the point, because the Pharisee isn't lying. He's telling the truth. He wasn't like these sinful people. In fact, if you know anything about the Pharisees, they were strict law keepers. Remember when Apostle Paul is talking about his life as a Pharisee, he says, according to the law, I was blameless. These Pharisees, so serious about their religion, they memorized, they memorized the entire Pentateuch, Genesis to Deuteronomy. They memorized it. Can you believe that? Like, we have a hard time even getting past Leviticus. But these guys memorize the first five books of the Bible. And so when Jesus points out the flaw of this Pharisee, it's not to say, oh, this Pharisee, he's lying, he's exaggerating the truth. No, he's right on. 
Jesus' problem with the man is that his righteousness is only based on an external standard. That's the issue Jesus has with him. Because when he's evaluating himself, he's doing it only based on a standard that looks at his behavior and his actions. Nothing about the way he talks about himself reveals anything about his heart. This list, it, it's outward only. And it makes sense then. He has to ignore his heart. He has to focus on his performance because that's the only thing he can boast in. But it's because he misses the heart and looks at his performance that his view of himself is skewed. It's wrong. So first he defines himself what I'm not like. What he hasn't done. I'm not like this tax collector. And then secondly, he continues with his righteous deeds. What he has done. What is good about him. So he says in verse 12, I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I get. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Now, if you grew up like me, the two big spiritual disciplines you were taught to pursue in your Christian life are one, Bible reading, and two, prayer. Over and over again, you're told that a Christian reads the Bible and prays. And you were probably taught that, so inundated with that, to the point where you probably, even to this day, you probably still feel really, really guilty when you don't read the Bible. When you don't pray enough, you feel really guilty. And you feel really super spiritual and close to God when you do read the Bible and you do pray. So that's the way we grew up, these spiritual disciplines emphasized. But how many of you feel really bad when you don't fast? I'm going to guess very few. And that's because we consider fasting to be a spiritual discipline that's on a whole different level of, of, of Christian living. Because when you think, you know, who are the spiritual giants in the church? And not just those who read the Bible and those who pray, but those who, who fast. And so the longer you fast and the more frequently you fast, those people appear more spiritual in our eyes very often. And of course, when people fast and when they're thinking about fasting, I always get asked uh, pretty much the same kinds of questions where people ask uh, questions in a way because they want to fast uh, with minimal inconvenience and minimal pain and with minimal effort. And so they're always asking questions about fasting, like about that gray area. But this man's approach, his attitude when it comes to fasting wasn't like what we do. You know, some days uh, we're busy and we skip lunch and we go, what, is that considered, can I consider that fasting? Or, you know, you think, well, like, oh, on the prayer sheet for monthly fasting for the church, I, I can sign up for breakfast because I don't eat breakfast anyway. That wasn't his attitude toward fasting. When this Pharisee fasted, he denied himself and he sought after God diligently. And he did this twice a week. And it was intentional. It wasn't accidental. And the reason he boasts in this, the reason he stands before God and says, God, I fast twice a week is because if you actually look in the Old Testament, God only requires that his people fast once a year. And that's on the Day of Atonement. So God's command is fast is one day a year. That's all I'm asking. But he's doing it twice a week. That's 104 times a year. So this Pharisee, he is killing it in the area of obedience. And that's why it becomes a source of his confidence and his spiritual arrogance. It's why he's able to puff up his chest and feel really good about himself. But here's the thing. He's boasting in an obedience that God never expected or required of him. 
So his self-assurance, it's false. It's not grounded in anything biblical. And what he's doing is he's making up his own rules, his own laws, and he starts fulfilling them. Why? So that he can have a sense of approval and worthiness. Now, on the one hand, you look at it externally, and what he does has the appearance of obedience and like it's God honoring. But it's really not, because he's not honoring God. To honor God means to do what God has asked you to do, not what you want to do. So when this Pharisee says, I'm fasting 104 times a year, way more than the one time a year God is asking, that's not God honoring, it's self-serving. In order to feel holier, in order to feel a sense of spiritual superiority, the Pharisee is making up commands for himself, he's obeying them, then he's coming to God and saying, look God, I'm pretty good, aren't I? And he begins boasting in them. And that's why this detail is said that he is standing by himself. He's too good to be with the rest of the crowd. Now I bring this up because I believe that all of us in this room, we all do this in some sort of way. We're all guilty of this. That we all have uh, in our lives either a certain attitude or perspective. Uh, maybe it's a practice, a behavior, a ritual, a rhythm you engage in that you uh, assign, you infuse with spiritual significance. And when you keep them, you feel spiritually good about yourself. We often think we take, we take a neutral thing or a personal preference and we raise it to the level of moral significance and then we feel better when we keep them. Right? Things that are not in God's word, things that we create and then we feel better about. Just like fasting for two weeks or twice a week. Right? What are those? Can you begin to identify what those are in your life? Maybe one of them is praying before every meal. And you feel really good about yourself when you pray before a meal because you're thanking God for his provision. You're counting your blessings. And it's a good thing to do, but you feel really good when you do it. And when you see others eat without praying, you think to yourself, oh, that dude's a sinner. Maybe it's reading three chapters of the Bible. Maybe it's reading five chapters of the Bible. Maybe it's reading one chapter of the Bible. But some of us, we have this idea of how many chapters of the Bible we need to read. And when we finish reading that amount, we feel really good about ourselves for that day. We've raised this thing that we've created for ourselves to a high standard. We fulfill it and we feel good about ourselves. Maybe it's the way you dress in coming to church. Oh, when you come to church, you need to dress like this. And when you see somebody not dressed according to how you believe the code of conduct is, you begin to judge them. You see, things like this, all, any of these things, these are good things. Fasting twice a week, that's a very good thing. But the problem is when you begin to justify yourself, when those become the ways that you forge your identity, then they become extremely bad things. Are there things that you have in your head? Things you do, requirements you make of yourself, practices or habits you insist on keeping, traditions of way to do church that you insist, these are the way things are supposed to be done that you are deriving your righteousness from. And the Pharisee in Jesus' story, he's using fasting to secure his standing before God. It's making him feel good and spiritual. But here's the thing. Any time that you have this kind of self-imposed law, it's a double-edged sword. Because the thing about a double-edged sword is it cuts both ways, right? A double-edged sword can both help, but it can also hurt. Because think about this with me. By way of extension, by way of implication, 
the Pharisee is proud of himself because he's fasting twice a week. Well, what would happen if he didn't fast twice a week? What would happen if something happened in that week and he, he had to miss fasting? Well, then the very thing he boasted in and clung to would be the very thing that crushed him. Because if his righteousness is based on his fasting, then what will the result of not fasting be? His unrighteousness. That he would feel undone. You see, it works both ways. Now let me give you a personal example. In my younger years as a Christian, I, I decided that it would be good for me to read through the Bible once a year. That it would be good for me to daily be in God's Word, to grow in it. I'm going to read the Bible cover, you know, cover to cover. But here's what happened. And, and I didn't realize it at the time. I didn't realize it until much later. But what ended up happening is I turned that reading the Bible, this good endeavor, I turned it into basically a measurable way of feeling spiritual and righteous before God. Because when I read the Bible cover to cover every year, it gave me a lot of assurance as a Christian. Right? It gave me boldness when, when I told people, you know, oh, I'm a seminary student, and then when I got ordained, oh, I'm a pastor. It gave me legitimacy when I discipled younger brothers in Christ. And so for years, I read the Bible cover to cover, once a year, every year. Now, there's nothing wrong with doing it. If you're doing it, great. If you're not doing it, you should do it. But let me explain how I came to realize that this, that this was exactly the same thing the Pharisee was doing with his fasting. First, nowhere in the Bible does it say, read me once a year, right? I know that because I've looked for it because I've read the Bible and I've never seen it. So I was reading it once a year, but then one year, I, I can't remember what happened, but for some reason, for, under some circumstances, I wasn't able to finish my annual Bible reading plan. And when December 31st came and I didn't have all the boxes checked on my reading plan that I had printed out, I felt something. When, when there were empty boxes, I, I felt unsettled, I felt unsure. And genuinely, I felt like I had let God down. And that led to me feeling guilty before God. It, it led to me feeling like an unfaithful Christian. It made me feel like, like a fraud as a pastor. And it was in that moment, feeling, feeling crushed and guilty for not having read the Bible all the way through, that the Spirit actually opened my eyes to help me realize that I had elevated this, this personal thing, this decision I made. I raised it to a level as if God had commanded this of me, as if it was the level of the rest of God's law. And as a result, every year when I was able to check off all 365 boxes of daily reading, I felt I could stand before God and hold my head up and be proud. I felt worthy to be a pastor, validated as a Christian. But that was an incredibly gospel-less way of viewing myself because it was all based on my effort and my work. But here's the crazy thing. I didn't know that until years later. I didn't realize that I hadn't seen what I was doing until I failed and I felt the consequences of it. Because it was only then when I didn't read the Bible that I felt really ashamed to come before God as a child. I felt, I felt disqualified as a, as a pastor. How can I tell people to read the Bible when I haven't even done it through the whole year? You see, I enjoyed that when I was able to do it because it gave me a sense of righteousness. But when I wasn't able to do it, I despised it because it made me feel unrighteous. Now, this is just a personal example, but what about you? 
Is there something in your life, and, and it could be something small, it could be something big, but, but something that you raise to the level of the law, and when you do it, you feel great about yourself, and when you don't, you feel lousy about yourself. But here's the real irony of all of this. You know, I felt so torn and uh, torn up, I felt so guilty about not finishing the Bible that year. But I didn't feel nearly as torn up and guilty in all the other areas of my life where I had actually disobeyed God and didn't do what the Bible told me to do. You know, when I read it, I was so quick to celebrate myself for keeping my laws, never, never proud about you know, obeying God, and I was so quick to hate myself for failing my laws, but never for failing God's law. Now here, here's my point. The danger of missing the gospel and trying to create your own laws to get a sense of identity is that you end up caring more about what you say than what God says. And Jesus uses this parable to expose that this is no way to view yourself, to stand before God. God, I know you didn't ask me, but look, I fasted 104 times this year. It's a warning. That if you're building your identity on your own work, you're building your identity on sinking sand. This is no way to view yourself. And next, the Pharisee, look, he draws attention to his tithing. Because he says here, I give tithes of all that I get. Now we read that and say, oh, he's a generous kind of guy. But in fact, the Bible, in the Bible, God doesn't actually command you to tithe all that you get. If you read the Old Testament, it's often to tithe a certain amount of crops and things like that. But he says he tithes everything that he gets. And, and the Pharisees, they're very, they were very meticulous about this, very precise. Because uh, this is Luke 18, but a few chapters earlier in Luke 11, Jesus, man, he's going at it with the Pharisees. Woe to you, woe to you. And he says to them, but woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb. And you read this and you're like, wow, this is very impressive. But Jesus isn't commending the Pharisees. He's not saying, wow, Pharisees, you, you tithe every little thing. He's actually pointing out how ridiculous their precision is. He's saying you buy spice and then you, you, may, you measure out a tenth of the spice and you do that. And he's, he's pointing out how ridiculous they were. Because what they were doing is they misunderstood the heart of God's law because they were focused so woodenly on how to apply it to specific areas. Right, this guy, this Pharisee here, I tithe all that. What, do you, what is he saying? He's saying, I don't just tithe my paycheck and give 10% of that. You know, even since I was a kid, I would tithe the birthday money that grandma gave me. He was, you know, he's the kind of guy who, who would go out on the street and find a quarter and pick it up and then go to church and tithe 10% of the quarter he found. But 10% of a quarter is 2.5 cents, so he would give two pennies and take a third penny and cut it in half and give that. That's how precise, that's how exact he was. And because he followed the law so closely to the T, he saw himself as righteous, as presentable before God. He said, he said, God, I'm worthy to stand in your presence. That's why he has no problem praying the way he is before the Lord. But all of that is external. Yes, he did a good job avoiding laws, violating laws. Yes, he did a good job of keeping some rules. But nothing in what he says addresses his character, his heart, his sanctification, his growth in grace. You know, if you begin, if, I want you to self-reflect and begin thinking about yourself. Like, how do you view yourself? Because it's easier to view yourself highly, more highly than you ought to, when you focus on just external and outward actions. 
It's really easy when you just look at that, but the righteousness and godliness God actually desires of us is more than just avoiding certain things or obeying certain things. God wants the cultivation of the heart. He wants inward sanctification and obedience. He cares about what's happening in your heart. That's why at the end of verse 14, he says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. You know, as you begin thinking about yourself, don't just think, am I obeying these and staying away from these? But ask yourself, am I growing in grace and humility and compassion and kindness? You know, how do you measure up when you compare yourself against these things? How are you doing as a gentle father? You know, how are you doing as a caring wife? How are you doing as an honoring child to your parent? How are you doing as a peacekeeping neighbor? How are you doing as a compassionate friend? How are you doing as an honest employee? You see, when you begin to ask questions, not about the externals, but about the internal, it becomes a lot harder to see yourself as good. Either missing the gospel entirely or, or moving beyond the gospel to go on to other things will lead to an inaccurate, proud, delusional view of self where you think you are righteous and right before God. But when you get the gospel when it sinks deep into your heart and begins to transform you from the inside out, your view of yourself becomes more like the tax collectors. Now last week we talked about tax collectors, so I won't go into it, but for those who weren't here, simply, uh, you have to know the tax collector, uh, he wasn't merely misunderstood and mislabeled by society. He really was a sinner. He really was that bad. He actually cheated and conned his own people. Right? He, he was a bad man externally and internally. And yet, this man gets the gospel and there is deep transformation that takes place in his heart. Because as opposed to the Pharisee, when he prays and stands before God in verse 13, what does he cry out? God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And as he confesses this simple prayer, his confession shows that he understands two fundamental truths about God that you need and must understand because it's revealed in the gospel. The first fundamental truth you need to know about God is God is holy. Now, if you have your Bible open, you're going, well, Andrew, I don't, what, where are you getting that from? I don't see that. Well, certainly it doesn't say it exactly here in the parable, but you know the tax collector understands this because he confesses he's a sinner. He's confessing to God, God, I understand that I've sinned, and my sin is not against man, but my sin against you. It's the same prayer David prayed in Psalm 51. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So he understands God is holy, and that's why he's confessing his sins. He's confessing. He's not justifying himself. He's not bringing up his list of excuses. He doesn't try to cover his mistakes with better behavior. He's not trying to get himself off the hook, which is so, so unusual because it's within our human nature to get defensive and to offer uh, reasons and excuses to give an explanation to defend ourselves when we're caught. And the question that I wrestle with as I read this is, how in the world is this tax collector who knows he's bad, how is he able to stand before a holy God and admit his sin without justifying himself at all? And it's because he knows more than the first fundamental truth. He knows more than that God is holy. He knows the second fundamental truth, that God is a God of mercy. And it's knowing God is a God of mercy that separates him from the Pharisee. 
Because what he does is he doesn't hold on to this delusional, self-generated righteousness in the hopes that this and the things I do give me right standing before God, but he holds on instead to the promises of a gracious and merciful God. And clinging to that, it gives him the freedom to own up to his sin and to confess. Which are you holding on to? Which are you clinging to? See, apart from the gospel, there's no way anybody would dare confess that they are a weak, needy, dependent, insufficient, evil, sinful person. You go out on the street and you ask somebody, are you weak, needy, insufficient, wicked, evil, sinful? Absolutely in no way would they confess to those things. I do some bad things, but I'm, real, I'm actually good. You see, no one would admit to this, and no one can admit to this unless you have an assurance of some kind, a freedom of some kind. And that's exactly what the gospel gives to you. Because if you only know God is holy, if God is only holy to you, then you will be just like the Pharisee. You will do everything he does, which is you try to minimize your sin and you try to present your best to God. You want to bring your best to God because you want to close the gap between his holiness and your sinfulness. It's a big gap. And so you're trying to minimize your sin and increase your righteousness to close the gap. But if you know the gospel of grace, if you know the forgiveness God offers you in Jesus Christ who died for you to wash away every sin, then you know now God is also gracious and merciful. God being gracious and merciful, by the way, doesn't mean God stops being holy. God still is holy, but now he offers to you grace and mercy. And when you have this gospel hope, you can do as the tax collector did. You can own up to your sin because now what you realize is God is not just holy and I'm not just sinful. God is supremely holy. I'm utterly sinful. The gap is much bigger than I realized. My righteousness cannot bridge it but the righteousness of Christ can. The tax collector asks God to be merciful, and God answers that prayer request. And he does this by providing his mercy in the face of Jesus Christ. You see, this verb, to be merciful, uh, we read it and it appears in the English all over, but actually, if you look at the Greek, the word to be merciful, that verb, it only appears twice in the entire New Testament. Once here and again in Hebrews. And it's a very unique word because um, it's not a word that just means mercy. It's a word that really means uh, atonement, covering of sin. And so the tax collector is not saying, God, have mercy, as in just look the other way. He's saying, God, have mercy by doing something to atone for my sins, cover my sins. And God's going to answer that by saying, I will be merciful to you. And that mercy will look like Jesus Christ in his perfect life and death for us. Friends, you can live today in the good news that God has shown his mercy to you to cover all of your sins so you no longer need to cling to yourself and your goodness. All you need to do is cling to Christ. And it's okay to be honest and humble. It's okay to admit that you're not all right. It's okay to admit that your life is not put together as well as, you know, as, as much as you want others to think. It's okay to admit that you're more insecure than you portray. It's okay to appear more scared than you want others to see you. It's okay to know that you're more lonely than your social media suggests. It's okay to admit that you're more sinful than you can ever imagine. 
And it's only okay because in the gospel you're told that despite all of those things, you are more loved than you ever dare hope for. And you know this is true because Jesus came as God's mercy to you. If he would love you so much, he would send his one and only son to die while you were a sinner. And you got to know today, this gospel hope is not just available for the perfected version of yourself, but for the present version of yourself. God's mercy is not just available for the saint that you want to be, but for the sinner that you actually are. And when you get the gospel, what gospel centrality does is, in your life, it means it frees you to stop pretending to be someone you're not. It frees you to stop performing to get somewhere that you can't get. Having the gospel in your life means you're free to look inward, see yourself as you truly are, and yet know God's mercy is for you to cover all of those sins. And here's what's going to happen. When you experience that kind of freedom, it's going to help you and make you, transform you to be honest and open and humble about yourself to others. When the gospel comes into your life, and this is where I want to get very practical with our church, is that the gospel will begin to bear fruit in your life so you're able to admit not only to God, but you're able to admit in front of others your sins and your failures. All right, and here's why I want to get practical. This week, uh, in the next seven days, in the next eight days, uh, everyone who's involved in a community group uh, will be in one. There will be one on Wednesday, there will be one today, there will be one on Wednesday, there will be one on Thursday, there will be one next Sunday. Now, if the gospel has penetrated your heart, that space and that time together will look incredibly different. It'll be authentic, it'll be transparent, it'll be open, honest, humble, and vulnerable. Because if the gospel has penetrated your heart and gives you freedom to actually see who you are, when you meet together, you won't just talk about your successes and you won't just boast in what you did right. You won't leave things superficial and shallow, which we're all really good at. But if the gospel has penetrated deep inside of you, you will also share your shortcomings and where you've messed up and you will go deep into your heart because the gospel has gone deeper still. But... That will only be the first step because the gospel can take you past that because gospel maturity isn't just now owning up to your sins, which it certainly is, but it begins helping you dissect and see why. And this is where you begin to go beneath the surface because if I confess to you, man, I failed to read the Bible this week and people think, oh, that's so deep. Well, gospel maturity can take you deeper because listen, it isn't, you didn't just forget to read the Bible. You didn't just have enough time to read the Bible. You certainly did. You didn't read it because you believe you could get more comfort and more peace by browsing the internet and doing some internet shopping, by playing some video games or streaming something online. That's why you didn't read the Bible. Gospel maturity and centrality can take you deeper than just, I didn't read the Bible, but get you to the heart of why. I didn't just struggle to pray regularly. I struggled to pray because I have a difficult time actually believing God listens to me, and if he listens, that God cares about me. I didn't just lose my patience with my spouse and my children. I was frustrated that they didn't put me at the center of their lives and serve me the way that I expect and I demand them. That's why I lost my patience. I didn't just gossip about that person to a friend. 
Gospel maturity helps you realize, I was jealous of all the good news and attention that they're receiving, and I wanted comfort in knowing there's one more person who didn't think they were so great. These are just examples, and we can go through many more because our sins are so many, but gospel centrality, as it pierces your heart, digs down deep, and it produces this humility and this honesty in you because you have an accurate view of yourself. I'm not just a sinner who does sinful things. I am a sinner. I am rotten to the core. And it helps you begin to lay aside your righteousness and admit your weakness and your sins. And then you move beyond just the behavior and the actions and the way that you messed up to begin to confess the heart and your attitudes and your beliefs. You know, if the gospel really penetrates into your life, I think people would come into the community groups and say, whoa, I've never seen such honesty and humility. And these people have no sense of pretension and self-righteousness and arrogance, but they are broken people. Why would they confess these things? Because of the gospel. Now, let me close with this last thought. <clears throat> when you miss the gospel, or when you try to move beyond the gospel, try to grow beyond it, you will see yourself like a proud Pharisee. And you'll see this word, and you'll go, amen, that's me. Because you know what you'll see? You'll see this. I am perfect. But when you get the gospel and you grow deeper into it, you begin start to start thinking like the tax collector because you'll see this word and you'll say, amen, that's exactly who I am. Imperfect. You see, some of you look at that word and you say, oh, that's me. I am perfect. <laughs> but those who get the gospel and have the freedom of Christ to recognize your sin, see this word and say, that's me. Imperfect. How do you see yourself today? How do you identify yourself today? Because if you think, I'm perfect, you won't cling to Christ. You'll cling to yourself and you'll boast in deeds you've done. But if you know you're imperfect, then you'll come with empty hands and you'll realize that there's nothing else to cling to but Jesus. See, this is gospel centrality in the life of a believer. And as it becomes more central, not only in the church, but in your life, may it give you freedom to see you, see yourself as you truly are, which is frightening, but then it gently assures you, hey, it's okay to be imperfect because God's mercy in Christ is abundantly available for you. Pray with me. Father, as we come before you, would you protect us from having this attitude and mindset of the Pharisee? God, I thank you that I'm not like the other people who aren't at church today. I'm not like the other people who overslept because they don't care about church. I'm not like the other people who would rather go and watch football, go shopping, eat brunch. I'm here. Father, would you protect us from praying in that way? by giving us a true reminder of who we are. We, we are sinners and, and broken. Our righteousness can never be good enough. But then give us a reminder that it's okay to admit our sin. Not because sin is okay, but because that sin has been nailed with Christ on the cross. And I pray, Lord, that in our hands we would never cling to our righteousness, our righteousness alone. We would never boast in deeds we've done, but we would only cling to Christ.
We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Saints, receive the benediction. Now may the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and the love of God the Father Almighty, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all, both now and forevermore. Amen. Would you hear the words of dismissal? Let us go forth to serve the world as those who love our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Go in peace, friends.